Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. In the early 2000s, the BRICS nations were the pick of emerging markets, vast, rapidly growing economies that promised stellar long-term returns. But it hasn't played out like that, at least not yet. Just last week, BRICS expanded its fold with six new members. But does the alliance actually make a difference? And in today's dumb question of the week, what are frontier markets? Okay, let's get into it. So BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. I imagine when you were a research analyst going around talking to lots of institutional clients, Roman, people asked about BRICS all the time. What was your stock answer? In fact, nobody talked about BRICS because if you did, it was seen as a bit of a... <laughs> a tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I, mean, I think for retail investors, it was nice because these acronyms help you summarise things, complex things in a very simple way. And that's why Jim O'Neill did a great job of putting these countries together, which aren't really very similar. That's the funny thing about BRICS as a grouping, is it was just invented by a Goldman Sachs economist, Jim O'Neill, as you said. It's probably the most successful piece of sell-side macro research branding there's ever been, right? Because it then <laughs> did turn into an actual alliance of some sort. And also amongst countries which certainly historically haven't been very friendly. Yeah, so he sort of willed it into action, didn't he? In 2001, he coined the term. And then the first formal BRICS summit was eight years later in 2009. And originally it was just four members, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And then in 2010, the next year, South Africa joined. I don't know if you've heard Jim O'Neill ever be interviewed, but he's just like a kind of Jeff Boycott of macro research. He's quite funny to listen to. He's got this kind of northern accent and he's just kind of no nonsense. Plays with a straight bat. Oh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> you compared him to Jeff Boycott. <laughs> yeah, just because of the voice. You know, I'd heard the voice because unfortunately I had to listen to it on Radio 3. That was my involuntary exposure to Jeff Boycott, unfortunately. But the first time I came across BRICS was actually when I was working at the bank and there was a guy I was talking to about investing. And this is really before I got into markets and really understanding what's going on. And he said, oh, I only invest in ETFs, things like BRICS. And I said, what are BRICS? And he said, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China. So I looked it up and that kind of started me getting interested in ETFs. I hope you didn't invest in a BRICS ETF because it's fair to say they've not done so well. I mean, people did jump on this trend and lots of asset managers made ETFs around the BRICS concept. I think there was six at the height and there's only one that's still going, which is from BlackRock. And it's now just a BIC ETF because uh, <laughs> Russia's been sacrificed after the invasion of Ukraine. So individually, the returns, and I've got data going back to 2008, complete data comparing them to the S&P. And this is in dollar terms. The Chinese ETF, GXC, which is the Spider S&P China Fund, that's gained about 0.7% per year. So it's just treading water since 2008. So really, it's gone nowhere. And this is just capital gain, right? So it's not dividends reinvested. And the India ETF, this is in the US again, is called PIN, P-I-N, PowerShares India Portfolio. Again, almost exactly flat, 0.1%. And then Brazil, minus 5.6% per year. And Russia's presumably gone to zero. Well, it's hard to tell because we, <laughs> we haven't got prices for Russia, so we can't really compare. And if you did construct an index based on the BRICS concept, the overwhelming share of market cap would come from China, I think more than 80%. Yeah, it's so big in comparison. 
And if you look at EM indices, usually China makes up around 30%, 35% of EM as a whole. But the point is with the BRICS idea that market cap is not capturing the whole story here. So the five BRICS countries together account for around 42% of the world's population and almost a quarter of the global GDP. And it's even more if you look at it on purchasing power parity terms. So if you account for the cost of goods around the world. So there it's more like 30% of GDP, which is actually larger than the G7, which is the major rich countries. Yeah, in terms of GDP, they'll probably outstrip what's currently developed markets. At least in PPP terms. But I think really the problem with all of these countries is turning that GDP growth into something which you can invest in. That's always the difficulty. And the block's going to get even bigger at the start of next year. So last week we had the 15th BRICS summit, which was hosted in South Africa. And apparently 19 countries submitted bids to join the bloc and six were accepted, which is Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Iran, Egypt, Argentina, and Ethiopia. How would you think about those new members? The thing is, once you start to incorporate countries like UAE, Argentina, Ethiopia, then it's a combination of some frontier markets as well. And I think really the meaning of BRIC was that it would be dominant, rapidly growing economies. What we've got here are countries which may be more accident prone politically, but also economically. And so I'd say more risky. So if there was some kind of way of investing in the new expanded BRICS, then it would be a very risky index indeed. But it would still be dominated if it was market cap weighted by China. I thought the interesting thing was the addition of the oil producing nations, particularly Saudi Arabia, because they are a US ally. And BRICS is always kind of seen as an opposition to the G7 in a way. So are Saudis starting to tiptoe to the China side more? This is what people are asking. I'd question whether Saudi Arabia was allied with the US, for example. The US has never been very happy with that relationship. It was always more of an economic agreement because the US needed oil. I don't think it was any kind of friendship. There's a very difficult relationship there. There's a big mismatch in terms of democratic standards. Also, if you look at women's rights in Saudi Arabia versus the US, very different. It was always a marriage of convenience. But I think over the last few years, they're sort of trialling a separation in a way. Saudi has definitely built a closer relationship with China and has started coordinating oil prices with Russia. Russia's been invited to OPEC plus as it now is. And repeatedly, the US has asked for more oil supply. And Saudi went the opposite way and was cutting oil. And now they're joining BRICS. So I think there's a potential here that we could get a separate trading bloc and also a political grouping, which is trying to push against the US hegemony that we've got at the moment. Understandably, perhaps, because some of these countries may do things which effectively get them frozen out of the dollar market. So setting up their own economic group, which potentially has its own trading currency and also has stronger trading links, might make sense. I mean, that's the real strong version of the future that some BRICS countries want to present, particularly China, I think. But at the moment, it's nowhere near that level of like issuing its own currency or anything like that. So it's not even a formal multinational organization. It doesn't have a headquarters and it's not established by treaty. I mean, we've been calling it an alliance, but that's actually a bit of a misnomer because an alliance in international relations terms is a mutual defense pact, which this is not. It's not even a bloc which implies a free trade agreement being in place. The BRICS is none of that. 
it's kind of a talking shop at the moment, at least. And they're not even all growing fast, are they? So all of the economies in that grouping, some of them are quite slow growing. Some of them just aren't growing. Argentina, for example. But there's often this question of, is BRICS even a real thing? Like, what is BRICS? Like, I've seen it referred to itself at various times as a forum, a mechanism, a platform, a strategic partnership. All of these are kind of nebulous terms which don't actually mean that much. But then you could say the same about the G7, I guess. At least with the G7, there is a kind of rationale behind it, which is that these countries are very rich. So if you just rank countries according to wealth, yep, they'd come out on top. Whereas this is much more of a grab bag of different countries. But they do share some common aims, don't they? Yeah, coming back to that idea of pushing against US hegemony, they are trying to get more representation by countries which now generate a lot more GDP globally in things such as the IMF, which would make sense because some of those countries themselves will need a bailout at some point, probably in the future. So the stat that really amazed me is that the president of the World Bank has always been an American, going back to World War II when it was established. And similarly, the managing director of the IMF has always been a European. So I can kind of see their point, these developing nations, where they're like, we're not really represented. The US and its allies dominate the institutions of the global financial economy. So I think it does make sense that these countries do have some kind of representation on these global institutions. They have representation, they just get outvoted quite easily. <laughs> More power, put it that way. I mean, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he actually attended the BRICS conference that just happened last week. And he said, and I quote, Today's global governance structures reflect yesterday's world. This is particularly true of the Security Council of the United Nations and the Bretton Woods institutions. So the Bretton Woods institutions are the World Bank and the IMF. And he says, for multilateral institutions to remain truly universal, they must reform to reflect today's power and economic realities. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? That's coming from the head of the UN. One thing that's always struck me when I look at global markets is how much these countries, many of them are underrepresented in terms of the size of their equity markets or the size of their bond market. And I'm always thinking, well, why is that? Why are they so economically underdeveloped? Is it because they're just kind of catching up? Or is it because somehow they've been held back by the existing institutions which we've already got? So perhaps it is the case that these institutions have not really been there to help them, but to help the West. I don't think there's much question about that. Yeah, that's certainly how they think of it. And they have actually taken some concrete steps to try and level the playing field, if you want. So they set up the New Development Bank, which was originally called the BRICS Development Bank. And that's jointly owned by the five countries and is kind of a rival to the World Bank, as in it's trying to do a lot of infrastructure development and lending to poorer countries and emerging markets. Because often the way these things would have been financed in the past is with money from the West, usually at very high interest rates. That obviously would have had a drag effect because of the very high cost of capital. So perhaps by providing their own capital, if they can, they will be able to more cheaply fund new infrastructure and bootstrap themselves out of this quagmire. Yeah, so it had initial capital of $100 billion. But the interesting thing, it's only spent around $30 billion of that. And some people say it's got bogged down in the internal politics of BRICS. So it's headquartered in Shanghai. But then China has its own Belt and Road Initiative and has done a lot of lending to emerging markets. 
which kind of dwarfs this new development bank. And this is the trouble, I think. You've always got one country which dominates this kind of investment. And usually it tries to do that because it's in its own interest to provide the infrastructure because it's going to generate lots of profit for its own companies. Yeah, so I think the New Development Bank kind of falls between two stools. It's also had to kick Russia out of it, or at least suspend them. And at the moment, despite its ambition to be lending mostly in local currencies to countries, it's still doing the vast majority of its work in US dollars, which is not surprising, but it wasn't what it was trying to do. So hopefully this will make them try and make their currencies more US dollar-like in the sense that they can be freely exchanged. That's always been one of the troubles with the Chinese yuan, for example. I mean, I think within BRICS, there's a big divide between China and all of the other countries, except maybe Russia. As in, China, I think, very much wants to take it in the direction of the anti-G7, the anti-NATO, and form it into its block and sphere of influence. Whereas South Africa, obviously, has tight relations with the West and wants to keep them. India has been trying to boost its relations with the US and is a democracy. They're not so keen, I think, to go along with China's vision here. And it's interesting that the new countries that joined the bloc, that was very much a push from China to make that happen. I think India was trying to slow it down. And the thing to remember here are those historic disputes between China and India, for example. So if you look at the border between China and India, there are skirmishes. This is like, you know, a shooting war in a very limited way anyway. Yeah, occasionally they fire each other. Or just, I saw something where they had this big battle where they were just hitting each other with sticks. They all laid their guns down. (laughs) Did you see that? They weren't allowed to. It's like, we're not allowed to shoot you. We just still have a little war. (laughs) But the point is that India and China are strategic rivals. They're not allies, even though they're both in BRICS. And in fact, India has banned most Chinese apps and is trying to restrict the import of certain Chinese goods. And as I said, it's deepening its economic partnership with the US. So India is definitely not going to go along with being part of some sort of Chinese economic trade bloc. I guess what India can do is always say, look, if the US doesn't provide us with certain concessions, then we're going to go down the China route. So they can always threaten that. Here's a negotiator by heart. (laughs) Play them off against each other. And I think in the case of India, it's pretty much a waiting game because it is developing rapidly. It is developing its own middle class. Its economic growth is improving. You look at its capital market, it's on fire right now. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of China. Investors are fleeing China, but they love India when you look at the valuations. It's seen as a kind of fluffy, friendly version of a very large, rapidly growing EM country, which China really isn't. China's desperately trying to get investors back on side. I saw just last week it's halved the stamp duty it charges on stock transactions and has started loosening some of the rules around its capital markets. It definitely wants foreign money to come back in again. I think some of the economic numbers that keep disappearing, like youth unemployment, yeah. instead of stopping publication, if they were just up front about it and said, look, yes, there's a problem, and these are numbers which are actually believable, if there was a bit more transparency, that would restore faith. Also some kind of governance improvement for their own companies. So people can just trust when they publish an annual report that it contains something semi-plausible. And there are other disagreements within the BRICS block. So the big one, I think, is that India, Brazil and South Africa, they all want to become members of the UN Security Council, like permanent members, of which there aren't many. 
China and Russia are already permanent members of the Security Council. And they're, I'd say, at best lukewarm about the other BRICS nations joining it. So they have this kind of textbook response where they say they understand and support the aspirations of India, Brazil and South Africa to play a greater role in the United Nations. (laughs) (laughs) They don't commit to saying, yeah, you should be on the Security Council. Yeah, this certainly has wafts of animal farm about it, doesn't it? And we've also got Saudi and Iran. Now, clearly, (laughs) they're not particularly friendly. That's one way of putting it. They hate each other's guts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you've got a Shia country, which is Iran. You've got a Sunni country, which is Saudi. You know, there's no, there's no love loss there. But maybe BRICS will bring everyone into harmony. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the aims of BRICS, at least what they keep talking about, is solidarity and supporting each other's diplomatic interests. And I think the way that's tended to play out is more of a commitment to non-alignment or just silence, right? Just being quiet when China mistreats its Muslim population or Russia invades Ukraine. It put India and South Africa in a difficult position and they tried to just bury their heads in the sand. But Muslim countries as well, I'd have thought, would have difficulty keeping quiet if the Uyghur Muslim population in China gets poorly treated. I mean, maybe the most interesting thing about the makeup of BRICS is that all the members have China as their main trading partner and not that much trade with each other. China kind of sits at the heart of it. So maybe the way to see this is the new Silk Road, because many of these countries would have been Silk Road countries. I remember that when they were talking about Belt and Road, China's big trading initiative and investment initiative, that was almost branded as the new Silk Road. You know, this is the ancient trading route between China and Europe, except this kind of stops when you get to Iran now. I mean, they did have one really ambitious project, which was to build BRICS undersea cables for transmitting data and hooking up the internet, because they didn't trust the present undersea cables because, you know, the US and their NSA agency were kind of spying on all the communications. So they had this big ambitious plan, I think it was back in 2012 or something like that, to string out cables across the globe, but it never really materialised. And it hasn't all been failures. So, for example, there was a BRICS contingent reserve arrangement. This is something which is supposed to help countries be bailed out by other members of BRICS if they run into trouble economically. It sounds a lot like the IMF. It is. It's just like a a BRICS mini-me for the IMF. I think this again speaks to their point, which they don't trust those traditional institutions, or at least don't think they're acting in their best interests. And understandably so. I mean, the cost of capital and some of the punitive arrangements which are made after a country defaults. Greece, I remember at the time that they had their sovereign debt crisis, they had really punitive agreements, which the population absolutely hated. Of course they did, because it would mean great belt tightening and a lot of suffering from people in Greece. I think the criticism of a lot of these BRICS initiatives are that they're mostly symbolic. So the New Development Bank hasn't been lending a lot of money The BRICS contingent reserve arrangement hasn't done anything, as far as I know. And there was even talk of setting up a credit rating agency. And that's just gone nowhere, obviously. (laughs) But I can see the reasons behind that, because it is quite biased. If you look at the way credit rating agencies work, even if it's unconscious bias, where did all of the analysts go to university? It's going to be Western universities. They're going to have a Western mindset. But there are Chinese rating agencies. I remember when they downgraded US debt, people in the US just laughed. They kept buying the US treasuries, didn't they? <laughs> they did. Downgrade us all you want. Yeah, that's right. But you can see that there's political pressure in the West not to downgrade Western countries. Yeah, 
which is true. It doesn't exist to the same extent for emerging markets. They'll happily downgrade them to junk status. But then emerging markets do default on their debts more. Yeah, they do. And so, you know, you'd have to be realistic about it. You couldn't just mark your own homework as being really good. I mean, the thing about BRICS that gets the most media attention and the most press coverage is undoubtedly de-dollarization and their plans or not plans for currency. All seems a bit pie in the sky to me. What do you think, Robin? I think there are two ways to look at this. I mean, one is the bilateral trade that you see in EM. Now, of course, if you're trading with China, yeah, it would make sense to trade in yuan. But if you're trading between two countries which aren't China, would it still make sense to trade in yuan? Probably not. So I think for the bilateral trade, yeah, you'd use EM currencies. But will there be a BRICS currency which effectively becomes a new trading currency? I think that's unlikely. Yeah, it seems like it. But then certain people keep talking about it. It's just not going to happen, is it? There's not going to be a BRICS currency like there is a euro, for example. I think if it did happen, it would need some kind of event to catalyse the creation of it. And it would have to be something which froze those countries, a lot of them, out of using the US dollar. Here we are talking about war. So if there was some kind of conflict, then yeah, I think it would probably lead to this creation of a new currency. But wouldn't those constituent countries be giving up their monetary sovereignty, right? Why would India want to abandon the rupee or China the yuan? It's not going to happen, surely. Well, this is always the problem. If you give up your sovereignty, that's always going to be difficult at home. You are giving up power. You are giving up part, a big part of the government's power if you give up the ability to issue new currency. And it does cause its own kind of crises. So if you can't control printing of your own currency, then there are certain things you can't avoid. Having to run a balanced budget in the long term. That's right. You have to do that. And it's no longer acceptable to have these large transfers. And the thing is, you'd have to have the economies making up the currency kind of converge a bit before you launched it, right? That was always the thing with the euro. It's like the entry criteria, which they kind of fudged a bit, was that you had to be within the certain band of exchange rates and growth and fiscal responsibility. Yeah, that's right. And for EM, that's going to be even harder because those currencies are much more volatile. So keeping it within a trading band is going to be tough in the lead up to the creation of a new currency. People are always obsessed by this idea of de-dollarization though, aren't they? But what they forget is the dollar is just overwhelmingly dominant still in global trade. 88% of international transactions are conducted in US dollars and almost 60% of global foreign exchange reserves at central banks around the world are US dollars. And really, there's never been anything like that in the past. When we had sterling, it was mostly the sterling region which did trading in pounds. And that was ex-colonial countries. So here people are voluntarily deciding to trade in dollars, even if neither of the countries is doing trade with the US, which is very different. Yeah, that's the point. It's voluntary, isn't it? You always hear it phrased as countries are being forced to use dollars. They're not being forced to. They use it presumably because it's much more straightforward to use dollars. But maybe there are some hints of cracks in the dollar's ubiquity. So I mentioned foreign exchange reserves at 58%. Well, if you go back to 2001, it was 73% of reserves of the US dollar. And in the 70s, it was 85%. So it has been going down. And as we know, central banks around the world have been buying gold, especially after the US froze Russia's sovereign assets. 
So we said earlier that bilateral trade, it would make sense to do it in one of the country's currencies. And Russia and India, for example, they tried to develop a mechanism for trading in local currencies that would have let Indian importers getting cheap oil from Russia, it would have allowed them to pay for it in rupees. But Moscow suddenly decided that it didn't want to have large stocks of rupees and talks were suspended after that. Is that the reason these things usually fail? Because you often hear countries talking about, oh, maybe we should trade in our local currency, and then it inevitably fails. Is it because the other country just doesn't want a load of random pesos from somewhere? (laughs) I think that's the problem. If you've got a choice between having lots of rupees and having lots of dollars, you know, it's pretty clear which one you'd choose. BRICS has been trying to address this. So they have the interbank cooperation mechanism which was launched to facilitate these cross-border payments in local currencies, but it's not seen a lot of use. And they're developing something called BRICS Pay, which I like the name, which is a payment system for transactions where you wouldn't have to convert local currency into dollars. So they're trying to build the infrastructure so it's ready for a time when it can be used, I think. So I think a big difference would be if one of these large oil-producing countries, like Saudi, started to agree to let countries pay for things with their local currency. That would be a massive change. That would certainly help the path to this happening, local currency trading. But it would require Saudi to make a huge change. Because that was their alliance with the US was primarily founded on the fact that they would work only in dollars. And those petrodollars were quite destabilising. A lot of the crisis that was in the 80s was due to those petrodollars. It has caused its own problems, but the problem then will be that you end up with petro-rupees, (laughs) Right. Petro, Yuan, you know, there's going to be destabilisation, whatever the numerator is. I bet we're going to run out of oil before we move away from the dollar. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just move to something else. I think that'll probably be the path which will happen first. I heard that the UAE was talking about working with India in the rupee, which would be interesting. And I know that Egypt, for example, has actually issued bonds in Japanese yen which seems unusual. You'd think it would either be local currency or the dollar. Yeah, so this happens a lot. They're called eurobonds. Eurobonds, even if it's in yen. Yeah, so they have crazy names. For example, if you've got bulldog bonds, those are bonds issued in the United Kingdom by a country which is not the UK. (laughs) Bulldog bonds. (laughs) Should be bully XL bonds these days. So, So let's see if you can guess some of these, Michael. Here we go. Matador bonds. Uh, Spanish bonds. Good. Kangaroo bonds. Australian bonds. (laughs) Yeah, or Matildas, they're called. They're bonds issued in Australian dollars, right? Yeah, by non-Australian countries. How about samurai bonds? Well, that's going to be the yen bonds that Egypt have just issued. Yankee bonds, as an easy one. Yeah, dollar bonds. But they're really the common one, right? A lot of countries issue bonds in the dollar. Now, if you've got bonds issued outside Japan by a Japanese domiciled company, those are called sushi bonds. (laughs) who makes these up did you create this list was this your equivalent of bricks you just came up with the name for all these bonds dragon bonds china i'm gonna guess issued in asia but denominated in dollars and dim sum bonds dim sum bonds are i'm gonna guess very small bonds issued by companies (laughs) in china (laughs) issued in hong kong denominated in renminbi the good thing about the names is they do give you a clue to what the bonds are yeah But as investors, there's often this distinction made between local currency bonds and hard currency bonds, i.e. issued in dollars or whatever. What's the thing to think about there? 
Well, I guess if you're worried about the country being able to service its debt, if its currency devalues, then it's not going to be able to service the debt as easily. So if there is some kind of currency crisis in that country, then the debt servicing will become impractical and expensive, and it may choose to default on those foreign bonds. So that's a worry. So as always, it's credit risk to do with emerging markets and issuance. And I guess we're lucky to live in a country where we can just issue bonds in our own currency and not worry about this. But corporates sometimes choose not to. So if you do a currency swap, you can actually do it cheaper in other countries. So certainly for corporates, they don't always issue in sterling, even if they're UK-based. It may be cheaper to issue in Japan, for example, and then just do a currency swap. The bond market is this weird labyrinthine thing, which I think I'll never (laughs) fully understand. Do you fully understand it? It's like your corner of the world. I just love it. I just love the labyrinthine complexity of it. I mean, if we just step back to finish off and look at BRICS as a whole, both the traditional BRICS and the new BRICS, if you could only pick one country to invest in, what are you going for, Roman? I think for me it would be India, because they show that they are willing to be fairly transparent in terms of politics, but also their governance. And I think that's a good thing. And they do a lot of collaboration with Western countries. I think they probably would choose to go down the Western route rather than Chinese route in future. And in terms of their stock market performance, it's been pretty good over the last decade. They're not too far behind the US, for example, if you compare with the S&P. But it does look overvalued right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the moment, it's kind of crazy. It's more expensive than the US. So maybe not right now, but if I did have to choose one with a gun to my head, that's probably the one I'd go for. How about you? Um, I mean, maybe I'd go for the Gulf States to come in and buy Manchester United. (laughs) Now, one of the benefits, I think, of our pension craft community is that it does have over 30 nationalities. And I think that gives you a really rounded view of markets. So if you want to discuss markets as part of our community, then you can learn more at pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what are frontier markets? So maybe it's worthwhile just talking about the classification of markets globally by index companies, because this is effectively the job of companies like MSCI and S&P and FTSE Russell. People want groupings which make sense. In other words, markets that move together. So the broadest split is for developed markets and emerging markets. Those are things which everyone's familiar with. Now, there's a third category, which are frontier markets. And these are countries which are less developed countries, but they're the larger and more developed in terms of capital markets of countries within the LDC category. What's LDC? So these are least developed countries, generally countries which don't have large GDP. And if we list some of the countries, you'll get the feel for it. So if we look at APAC, there are four countries in the frontier market category, according to MSCI. That's Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka and Vietnam. So some countries kind of hover on the edges. So it may be that Vietnam gets upgraded to EM category. Really, these are countries which haven't quite made it into the EM category in terms of development, but they're on their way. It seems to me when I look down the list that the countries in frontier markets fall into kind of three groups. You've got small countries which are quite developed, like Estonia, that's in there. Then you've got countries 
which are kind of becoming more market orientated over time, even if they might be rich. So like the Gulf states, a lot of them are frontier markets. And then, as you say, you've got countries who are less developed, but big. So places like Kenya or Vietnam. Yeah, for example, Croatia. Laura's just been on holiday there and it is just a European country. Not a bad thing, just a European country. (laughs) Well, it's very odd to call it a frontier market, given that it's such a developed country. I think it's just size, like you say. It uses the euro and it's part of Schengen, for example. Yeah, both from this year, though. So maybe it will get upgraded to EM soon. But is the point about frontier markets from an investor point of view that they are riskier and more illiquid than EM and certainly than DM? With hopefully a greater risk premium. In other words, you're compensated for taking that risk. However, historically, all of these promises about greater risk and greater return have been patchy at best. So if you have, for example, had a big EM exposure for 20 years, it hasn't really panned out in terms of huge returns. I'm looking at the MSCI Frontier Markets Index, and it's certainly true that it's underperformed the all-country world index for the last 20 years. So if the all-country world index has delivered 8% per year, Frontier Markets have delivered 6.7%. But what's strange to me is when I look down the fact sheet and I come to the factors box, So what I would have expected is that these are going to be volatile, jumpy, risky companies, which over the long term do well, but you're going to have big drawdowns. But in fact, you look at the box and the biggest overweight it has is towards low volatility stocks. And I think that's a nice illustration of the fact that volatility isn't the same as risk. You can have a stock which normally has low volatility, but which is subject to huge drawdowns. So if you do buy a Kazakhstani oil company, for example, okay, the volatility might not be huge because it doesn't trade much, but there is always the risk that the company goes bankrupt and you just lose everything. I also wonder if some of this is due to the sector weights. So financials makes up a huge part of frontier markets, almost 40%. Interesting second is communication services. Yeah, you do have some massive telecoms companies that kind of have a monopoly in smaller countries. Now, I've never had any kind of exposure to frontier markets at all. It just feels to me as if it's a kind of also-ran category, which doesn't generate higher returns usually, and which doesn't add a lot to a portfolio. So, you know, should people consider it in their portfolios? It's always worth looking at, but it's just such a weird combination of different types of country that I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Seems to be just whatever's left over, right, that didn't make it into the first two. Yeah. But you don't even have EM, right? So (laughs) you're definitely not going to have Frontier. It'd be weird to have DM and Frontier and leave out the middle bit. But should people consider it? I think it would be a pretty hard sell. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.